Yeah! It's the Five Tool Podcast. Kicking it with you here on a Saturday. Beautiful Saturday afternoon in Wisconsin. Loving it. Southeastern Wisconsin. Getting some nice weather. I know Seamus up in Sheboygan's getting some nice weather as well. We got a very special episode of the show today. But first, let's say hi to everyone around. Black Josh, you good? I'm good. Seamus, you good? I'm always good. I know you're always good. You're, you're, you're having a heater and having a beer outside on your porch right now, right? Damn right I am. Excellent, excellent. Well, we're going to keep this first part of the episode short and sweet because we have a very special <coughs> guest on today, a very special interview. I know, I believe it was last Saturday's show, we did a really interesting, I, I read this, a very interesting story from Don August, formerly of the Milwaukee Brewers, talking about his time playing in the CPBL. And we, we managed to get a hold of Don, and he, he's our special guest on the show today. And he's going to tell some stories of playing baseball, not only in the United States when, in, with the Brewers and Major League Baseball, but also his time that he spent in the Olympics. He was a part of the Olympic team in 1984, and as well as his time playing baseball internationally around the world, from Mexico to Italy um, to Taiwan to the Dominican Republic, Puerto Rico. The guy is just full of amazing stories. He's working on a book right now. And it's a really awesome interview, and we hope you stick around a little bit to check it out. Um, just want to do a couple highlights of some major stories going on for baseball right now. Um, it seems, well, we'll just start. It seems like the, made, the minor league baseball season will likely be canceled this year. There's been no official report, and, I, and I'll say that again later. There is no official report, but in a story by, from LookoutLanding.com, Joe Doyle, Talked with multiple agents representing minor league players. He says that on Wednesday they were informally they were informally advised that there would be no regular se- minor league season in 2020. MLB will instead expand rosters for their upcoming condensed big league season, which will probably be around 100 games. There will also be a developmental league training and possibly games played from spring training facilities for some of the players that don't make those expanded rosters but like i said before no official report has come out but it sounds like in the next two to three weeks there will be an official report that there will be no minor league season this year that's a bummer but it kind of makes sense with expanded rosters you're gonna have more more players playing in the major leagues this year more than likely um the second headline i want to get to is the little league world series for the first time in its 75 years uh the little league world series has been canceled that's really unfortunate for those kids but i mean it's one thing to cancel things just here in the United States, but this is, you know, a worldwide event. People come from all over the country, or I mean, all over the world to come play in the United States of America, these kids, and we got to keep them safe. And no matter how you feel about it, there's still travel bans going on, and these kids aren't going to be able to even come for the, the qualifying rounds. So does anybody have any thoughts on the minor league or little league World Series being canceled this year? Well, that just means that Corey Ray is going to be on the Brewers roster this year. Yeah, more than likely. I mean, it's kind of making or break it for Corey Ray, don't you think? Yeah, but it's going to be interesting to see because um, he's only been up for, what, a cup of coffee? Yeah, he's been up for a cup of coffee. I mean, yeah, really because, you know, he had a really good 2018 minor league season and it seemed like he was finally getting to the point where we might be able to see him regularly in the majors. And then he had a really disastrous 2019 season in AAA. So it, it's, it remains. Yeah, it's going to be interesting. This is going to be his his bounce back opportunity, and it's I'm I'm curious to see what he does with it. Yeah, I imagine it's his last bounce back opportunity. Well, the Brewers do have a lot of depth in the outfield, so maybe they could use him as a trade chip for something if if he does start to come 
come through, or maybe he could potentially be, you know, a replacement for one of the big guys once they get up in age, and, you know, Ryan Braun plays more first base, perhaps, but, yeah, Corey Ray's kind of last chance to really show himself, and, yeah, with the Little League World Series, um, there will be a regular season for Little Leagues, but they just won't have the international playing of uh, Little League World Series, so, unfortunate news, but... I mean, we can all look to the fact that it sounds like before July 2nd there will be a Major League Baseball season this year of some sort, and at least it's something, right, guys? Yeah, it's, 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 it's something, all right. I'm sick of waiting. Yeah, we're all sick of waiting. Me and Josh were all playing catch again earlier today, and he threw out his arm, and my shoulder's hurting, so we got to get these big league guys playing so we can have something to look forward to and watch the professionals do it. Yeah, I'm going to be out for Tommy John surgery for the next year. So <laughs> <Like a> TJ. <laughs> um, well, with that, um, we're going to take a quick break, and we're going to get to the Don August interview. That's the real highlight here, and um, that's really what we want to talk about because it's, it's an amazing story. It's amazing what he's gone through in his career all over the world. So stay tuned. There's going to be a little break, and then we will be with you with the Don August interview. So thanks, everyone, for listening. Please like, share, subscribe, review. Um, holler at us. Tell us what we're doing wrong, what we're doing right. Tell us what you want us to talk about, and we'll deliver. So thank you so much. Don't widen the plate. And now, Don August. All right, everybody, we got Don August here, formerly of the Milwaukee Brewers. We're very excited to have him on. Um, I guess I'll just give a little background as to how this interview came about. I've, I was doing some research, Don, on the CPBL because right now they're the only league that's you know, active in the entire world in terms of pro ball at least. And, um, of course, on May 5th, the Korean uh, KBO organization, that's going to get started. And then it looks like before July 2nd at some point we'll have some form of a Major League Baseball season here in the United States. But that got me to... To listening to some podcasts and doing some research, and I noticed that you had um, done some time in, in Taiwan for the CPBL, and you got a few interesting stories, and then I, I dug a little deeper, and I noticed that your whole career is full of just amazing stories, and I noticed on Twitter you've been telling some of these stories, and you've been getting really good responses from it, and I just I just had to try to get you on here to tell some of your, your awesome tales from playing baseball around the world. So thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, no problem. Glad to be here. All right. Um, so just a little background on, on Don's career here. Um, he, he spent four years with the Milwaukee Brewers. Um, he was drafted by the Astros 17th overall. Uh, before his pro ball career, he pitched in the 1984 Olympics in Los Angeles, which is incredible. Before you were even had done any time in pro ball, you played in the Olympics. Uh, you were traded to the Brewers in August of 1986. Um, you were traded along with Mark Knudsen, and you were traded for Danny Darwin. You pitched four years with the Brewers. That ended in 91. Uh, Don's played all the way up until 1996, playing in England, Mexico, Taiwan, the Dominican Republic, and Italy. He has many stories from around the world, and now he teaches in the Menominee Falls school system. He's been doing that for 14 years, and he also broadcasts high school games for Time Warner uh, TV. So, Don, first off, I want to get a little background on, I want to I hear how it was for you to be playing in the Olympics, representing the United States of America in the 1984 Olympics in Los Angeles, and you won a silver medal before you had ever played pro ball. Tell us about that experience. Well, it was a great experience, that's for sure. Um, that was back in time when um, they just only had the amateur athletes, so they weren't using pro athletes at that time. Um, a good thing about for me, was that the Olympics 
being in L.A., that's where I'm from. That's where I grew up at. So, like, in my hometown and my family and friends were able to watch and be a part of it all, too. So that was kind of cool. But I went to just a small college. You know, I went to Chaplin College. A little small at the time was a Division II school. It was a good baseball school. The only, you know, the only two Division II teams that we played against was in our conference. But, you know, so I got to play against and pitch against, you know, USC, UCLA, Arizona State, Wichita State, you know, Pepperdine, UC Santa Barbara, San Diego, name them all. And I got to pitch. So that was something that lured me there. But we were at a small little private school. We played at a city park in the city of Orange. And at our games, we probably had about 30 people, 20 people, 50 sometimes. It was probably just friends and family and girlfriends and that sort of thing, you know. <laughs> Yeah. So we, we played in these small little crowds, you know, for well, I played in. So I, I got my opportunity to get, I had a great year that year, my junior year, and they brought, the U.S. Baseball Federation brought 31 guys, their final 31 guys, you know, they felt it was like best college players, to Louisville, Kentucky. And that was the start of uh, our tryout period. We had uh, about a week of training and then we went on this 33-city tour in 30-something days. And in the midst of that tour, you know, they cut down the uh, team from 31 to the final 20. And they started out with uh, 16 pitchers, and they cut down to eight. So, so I, I made it through all that. I was going to go. I got to, it was just a thrill to represent my, my country, having a USA, you know, on your chest, you know, that representing your country. So that was, that was really a, a great experience. On the tour, we played in about, I'd say about 10 to 12 major league stadiums, the games before a major league game. And we traveled around all these other little cities. We played some games, a seven-game series against Korea, a seven-game series against Japan. And, and it was just really a great thing. And then, of course, when you go to Los Angeles, being in the Olympic Village and mingling with all the other Olympic athletes that were running around. I remember Mary Lou Retton, um, Fraser Gaines, a diver. And then I remember one time sitting down having lunch one time with Michael Jordan before he was anything, really. Wow. He hadn't played any pro, pro basketball yet. They had two guys on their team that played for North Carolina. So they kind of, I don't know how they kind of recognized with those guys. They all, we all sat down together and, yeah, that was Michael Jordan. I, I knew who he was, but <laughs> I didn't know he would be he'd be coming to the superstar phenom, you know, world best basketball player. Well, that was just really exciting. We got to play the the Olympic baseball games in Dodger Stadium. So we're playing in these 50-something thousand sell-outs every time we played, and it was just awesome. You know, I ended up getting a silver medal, which kind of stunk that we didn't get a gold, but, you know, hey, um, we lost to Japan, and on that day, they played better and beat us, you know, so... I have a silver medal, and I kind of tell people, yeah, it's only a silver, but I know it's kind of sucky to be the second best in the whole world at something, you know, so that's <laughs> kind of my, my answer to that. But, so it was great. It was just, that was before, you know, I, I got into anything with professional baseball. I mean, I began my base, my pro career, like, right after. I signed my contract during that summer, but we had to wait till afterwards to get paid our bonus money, and then... You know, all of our teams kind of started putting this in their places and went from there. That's incredible. I mean, just to know that you're, you were narrowed down to one of the top 20 baseball players 
to represent the United States in the country and then to win second place in the world. Like that has to be, you know, as big as winning, winning the World Series, you'd think. Because, I mean, I mean, you know, the top talent in the world is playing in the Olympics and you were a part of that. That had to be absolutely amazing. And then, and then after that, you were drafted 17th overall by the Houston Astros. Tell us about how that felt. Yeah, so, I mean, this is all during my junior year. I mean, 1984 was a good year for me, you know. Um, I had a great college season. We had a really great team. We came short of going into the Division II College World Series. You know, we were, like, ranked through the whole season, you know, there at Chapman. And then I, I, I did so well, I got a lot of attention. And then, you know, the scouts were all buzzing about me, and I ended up getting drafted in the first round. So that was really cool. And, um, you know, then from there... You know, I we you know began you know my pro career. Um, after the Olympics were done, they gave me a little bit of a rest. The Houston Astros—that's who I was drafted by—and I went to it's called an instructional league. It's almost called a fall ball nowadays, I think. But it's, it's just called instructional league. You go there from like about the middle of September to the end of October, and it's kind of like a spring training type of thing. You know, it's all these new young draft picks and young prospects get brought to this. And it's workouts in the morning and stuff like that. And you play these exhibition games against these other new, you know, draft picks and prospects in the other organizations. So that was the first thing that I did. was in Arizona. And then um, after that, they told me to sit. And then in the mail, in that winter, I got a letter telling me I was being invited to major league spring training. So I was like, that was just even better. I had the opportunity to go right to a major league spring training. The first thing I kind of ended up doing after instructional league, and you know, there you got guys like Nolan Ryan and Bob Nipper and Mike Scott, and you know, those some great pitchers there. Jose Cruz and you know, there's Dicky Thon, a lot of other guys I can just name them down. But so I'm going there at 21 years old, and I'm I'm doing PFPs with Nolan Ryan. So wow. I thought that was kind of cool. And, wow. So, the first thing I did after that, you know, I didn't make the team, of course. And they just got me there to see, just to be around the guys and see what it was like to kind of be a little bit of a major, more in a major league baseball uniform in the, you know, spring training game. But I, I ended up going and skipping um, rookie ball and A ball. I went right to double A for the Astros, and that was my first season. It was in then 1985 in Columbus, Georgia, in the Southern League. Wow. That's incredible. You, you got to, you know, practice with Nolan Ryan firsthand and all sorts of these stars that were part of those great 80s teams. That's absolutely incredible. So then not long after that, in 1986, you came up and, well, you, you got traded and then you, you came up in 86 with the Brewers. Um, so how, what was your time in the show like? What did that feel like when you first got to take the field to pitch in a Major League Baseball game? And what was your time with the Brewers like? Well, it, it's like nothing's ever really easy. I mean, I was in a good spot because I was a prospect. I was drafted in the first round. I was traded for a, another major league player. But, you know, you, you got to battle and battle. I mean, it took another year and a half or so after being traded to the first to make it to the major league. Now, I, I've been around, I forget how long, well, by the time I got called up, I've probably been about four major league spring training by then, but never in the major. So you kind of have a feel, but you'll learn it's a big difference of pitching a major league game in the season compared to a major league exhibition game in spring training. So it was like finally a relief because you kind of wonder, God, am I ever going to make it? I, you, know, you can pitch great and pitch good, but 
It's just not your turn. And then you struggle and you hope you better get back on track. So when you finally make it, it, it it's like a, a relief. And then, man, now you're at work. It's the best. Yeah. And now you got to work even harder now that you're at that level, right? Yeah. Once you get there, it's not over because now you got to be good all the time. Yeah. You, you, know, you start to struggle and have a few games. It's like, hey, you know, there's always that next guy behind you and they're always looking for someone else. So it's a lot of pressure to always to be, to be good. Yeah. I mean, just getting up there, like you, you, you alluded to, it's a, it's a complete relief to make it to the majors, but then you've got to compete at that level with the top talent in the entire world. So, I mean, that says a lot about who you were as a pitcher. I mean, just to be able to make it that spot, but then to, to last, you know, quite a few years at that, at that major league level. Um, so your, what would, what would you say is your, your greatest moment playing with the Brewers in Major League Baseball? What would you say was like your crowning achievement? I know I, I mentioned this to you that I thought it's so awesome that you had the first win ever at the Sky Dome. Um, what would you say was your crowning moment as a, as a Milwaukee Brewers player? Well, I think making it up to the Major Leagues, when you get that first day in the Majors, which was kind of a cool thing for me, is like I got called up, as, it was like the 1st of June, and I showed up to Milwaukee at County Stadium, you know, Tom Treblehorn was the manager at the time. He welcomed me and congratulated me being there. And he said, hey, you're here to be a starter, but you're not going to start for like four days and we're in Seattle. But we're going to throw you up in the bullpen today, so this is kind of be ready, you know? All right. So I'm out in the bullpen, and, um, you know, uh, I, I end up getting brought into the game in the sixth inning or something like that, and we were losing. I pitched two great innings, no runs. We came from behind to take the lead. We brought Dan Plesak in, who was an all-star closer at the time. He comes in, does a two-inning save, you know. You don't wow. quite do those so often anymore, but he came in, did a two-inning save, and so I got a win out of relief in my first day in the big league. That was kind of cool. Wow. I would, I would say other things is being teammates with Robin Yell and Paul Mulder. By the me, by me, but I just watching those guys play every day, every day, just watching how good they were, how they played the game. That, to me, was like something. I remember as it was happening, I said, Daniel, you, you should keep a good eye on this and just really enjoy watching these two guys here. Now, of course, they ended up becoming Hall of Famers. So I think that was kind of for the teammates of theirs to be able to see how they played the game at that level. Um, so, yeah, there's a bunch of other memories, too, but there's a couple off the top of mind. Yeah, I mean, Robin Yount and Paul Molitor, as Brewers fans here, that's like the holy grail. That's two of the guys on the Mount Rushmore of the Milwaukee Brewers. Yeah, that had to be just incredible watching those two play day in and day out, working together. I mean, those are two of the best ball players of all time. So that's that's absolutely incredible. And then, so in 1995, you went to Taiwan to play in the CPBL. And upon upon reading about this league, because they're the only active pro ball league in the world right now I stumbled upon your story and that you had that you were just recently telling on Twitter about a run-in with with some gangsters in the CPBL now I want to I want to hear about this I read I read some of your tweets on our last episode but I want to hear it straight from the horse's mouth uh, that's an incredible story and and please please tell us the story I I really really want to hear this one too Tom please well, yeah, it, I went to Taiwan. That was 1995. I started that year in spring training with the Pittsburgh Pirates. Um, I went to AAA with them for the first month, and I, I got released. And uh, my old scout who drafted me by the Astros way back when said, hey, I know these guys that can 
to get you to go play in Taiwan. Like, well, okay. I've already played a little bit in the Mexican League, too, at this time. And, uh, and well, you know, baseball was a mess. That was, like, right when the, you know, the, the, the strike. There was no World Series in 1994. So this was rolling into 1995. There's no state major league spring training. It's the replacement players. And finally it got settled. It was a big mess. So I said, you know what? I just got released. I'll go to Taiwan. Let me see what it's like to be in Asia. <laughs> so I went to Taiwan, expecting just maybe to play one year and maybe get back to the state. But I didn't, so I went back my next year in 1996. And this is, what, this is the season in which this kind of story takes place. You know, the, the CPBO. And um, during this year, we were kind of starting to hear things about gamblers and gangsters and fixing games and stuff like that. So there was another American guy on my team, and we were like, kind of like, wow, really? So we kind of started like looking real close as we were watching our games. We were watching the other team and just seeing if there's any kind of funny things going on, if something didn't look right. And we we're keeping a good look out on our own team, too. <laughs> and if our, any of our teammates were doing this. So we we're just kind of going through this, and we we're basically, we we're really hoping that it wasn't true. But um, things started to kind of happen. It was like, probably about in the second half of the season, we were playing one of the teams called the, the Elephants. And the next day at, at our field, we kind of heard of a, a commotion, kind of something had gone on the night before, after our game. Uh, we had heard that some of the Elephant players went to a little bar there in town, in our hometown, which is called Taichung. And... Something was said that they came across these gamblers, and there was like supposedly the story was. Uh oh. And we're back with Don August. Um, I'm sorry, our call dropped, and we're going to get back into the middle of the story. So, Don, you were talking about how you were kind of keeping an eye on the teams, and and in your uh, in during a Taiwan baseball game, you were kind of getting a feel for what kind of you know, potential game-throwing and, and gambling was going on. Um, just if you don't mind picking up where you left off in your story. Yeah, we're talking about that uh, one of our games, we kind of had heard that some players on the elephants got approached by some gangsters at this bar and took them back to their hotel room. I guess they had supposedly two different sets of gangsters. One of them said they had to win, and the other one said they had to lose, something like that, so... This set of gangsters, I guess, came out on the short in the sick and they took these guys back to the hotel room. And one of the players thought he'd lip off with them, but one of the gangsters pulled out a pistol and pistol with him across the head. Holy God. <laughs> so he's at the field that next day with a big old gauze bandage like wrapped around his head. And we'd seen that there's a bunch of uh, security around the dugout and around the stadium. So we kind of caught wind of that story. So me and my teammate are going, wow, man, something must be kind of going on here. And we're hoping our team isn't doing anything like this. So down the road, probably these, about a month, about three weeks a month later, we're up playing in Taipei. And um, now in, in Taiwan, they love to sing. They got these karaoke places like all over the place. <laughs> They're like, I mean, everywhere. I mean, incredibly, there's so many of them. So a lot of my teammates and people I got to know there would often ask me to go to these KTV places and go sing. I guess they always liked to take me out to have fun, but 
they wanted me to sing the the, the English songs. And <laughs> I don't sing good at all, but they always said I did. I don't know. But anyway, but going to these KTV places was nothing. This one time, this one guy I knew said, hey, let's go to a KTV. And I said, all right, I'm sure we'll run into some friends and people we know. So we go inside the place, and, and I walk in. I go, oh, well, it's a kind of a bigger room than normal, because usually there'd be about six of us at most, kind of six, seven people. You know, I bet you there were like 15 to 20 people. So this room is much bigger. And I, and I didn't really recognize anybody. I thought, well, what the heck, you know? So me and my buddy, we go, we sit down, and, you know, there's, they give you drinks and food, and, you know, everyone's just having a good time while everyone's singing. And um, as we're sitting there, after a little bit, this Taiwanese lady walked up to me, and she says, hi, what's your name? So I told her my name, and she's speaking in English, too, perfect English. Hmm. And she goes, uh, what are you doing here? Oh, I'm, I'm here playing baseball, and so we're sitting there talking and just hanging out. And then, eventually now, she was just kind of buttering me up. She knew who I was. Hmm. But she just had to break the ice and kind of make it work. Because then, next thing you know, she, she, she goes to me, says, do you know what the untruth game is? I, I mean, I knew exactly on the spot what she, what she meant. And then I realized she was there for something else, you know. And um, <laughs> I'm like, oh, God, I shake my head. I'm thinking, okay. So I glance around the room. And I, okay, I don't recognize. I go, you know what? These are freaking gangsters here, and all these people around are waiting to find out if I'm going to join in and participate in this stuff. So I'm like, man. So I'm not. I don't know what to say. She looks at me and she goes, she points across the room. She see that girl over there? And I go, yeah. She goes, do you think she's cute? Goes, yeah, she's cute. Just you can have her. I'm like, oh, oh, okay. Um. So I put my head down and okay, I gotta think. How am I gonna get out of this room now? <laughs> you know, one Now, I mean, I know they pistol whip guys, and, and there was a story from a few years back before I ever came up about some guy got by some gangsters got tossed off of the roof before. Yeah, and I didn't word that went around. So I'm like, okay, this isn't a good. I'm not in a good place right now. So then she goes, she goes to me, she goes, if you. The gang, these guys over there tell, told me they'll give you $10,000 just to think about it. You don't have to do it, but you just, they'll give you $10,000 to just think about it. I'm like, no. I go, I, don't, I, I can't do this. Then she goes, Kids, see the other girl over there, another girl. You can have her too. We can make a lot of money. We can do this. So I'm oh, my head down, trying to think, how am I going to get out of here? And then just, why, just, why do you look so sad? <laughs> I, don't, I don't think I'm looking sad. I just say, you know what? I can't do this. I can't do it. Just think about it. I said, no, I can go tell the boss now that I'm not going to do it. Tell him, no. Just, are you sure? I go, yeah. Just, you know if you don't do this, you'll never win another game here. I go, that's okay. I go, you guys don't bet on me to win, but I'm not going to do nothing to do anything about losing a, a, a throwing a game. So now she walks over to the big boss. He's probably about 15 feet away, sitting in the middle of the room, the big chairs and stuff. Okay, yeah, that's him. So she goes up to him, and I can't hear what she's saying, but she's telling him something, and he snaps his head and just makes eye contact with me immediately. And then about a couple seconds later, he pops up to his feet, and he just screams something out loud to everybody in Chinese, which I didn't know what he said. And then, like, instantly, boom, 
The whole room got quiet. The music stopped. Everyone stopped. And then everybody got on their feet, and then we're, we're starting to now leave the room. Like, the party was, like, over, like, right there. But now he's mad. Okay, cool. I'm waiting for them to all walk out of this room and go to, to the elevator. We're, like, on the 10th floor of this building. I'm going to hang in the back and let everyone leave, and I'm going I'm to go down the, you know, the, the fire escape or something, you know, let them get out of here. And they go, no, 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 you've got to come too. So they kind of, not really grab me, they kind of shoot me to the door and out the door and towards the elevator. Like, oh, man. So they all get in the elevator, and then they, they kind of get, I get, I get pulled in too. And I was like the last one in, so I'm facing the front of the elevator with my back to everybody. I'm like, oh, man, this isn't good. <laughs> so I did have a relief flow because the elevator didn't go up. That was like the first big relief to me because if we're going up, that means we're going to the roof, yep. and that means I was going to go up. So I was really relieved that the elevator was going down. Down we go. Now, I wasn't out of the woods yet because now I was literally waiting for someone to like strap a cord around my neck and choke me out and strangle me right there. I, I was like heart pounding, my mind like just waiting to get to that bottom floor, which it seemed to take forever, you know, going down those 10 floors. Got to the bottom. The elevators open up. They go to the left. I go to the right, and I'm out of there. So it was a great relief. Now, I, I find my buddy who brought me there. And I, I find him. I go, I, I, I use a lot of words I won't use. I, I, I was like, what the F and this and that? Why did you bring me here for? What's the I'm sorry. He starts to call him. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. They make me bring you here. They told me I had to bring you. I said, don't you ever do that again. I'll be blanking and kicking your blank and you know what, you know, blah, blah, blah. So that's how that ended. So, take off. Um, you know, just kind of end the story out. With, for the rest of it, I had five more starts for the rest of the season. I was 4-0 with one no decision. Which That one decision, I left the game late, the game tied. But I, I won four out of my five games. And, you know, they said I wouldn't win another game if I didn't join their gang. And I, was, I wasn't bothered again for the rest of the year, nothing like that. So, you know, it was just a, a big relief that I got through that. <laughs> wow. That's, wow. That's incredible that it seems like they organized that party, that entire get-together, just to try to, you know, get, get you in with them. They did. And yeah. the, the way that they said that, oh, we'll give you $10,000 just to think about it. It's so it's such a good idea that you didn't take that. Because, I mean, once you take their money, oh. then you're in whether you want to or not. And Yeah, yeah. Oh, I'll just take the money and tell them, no, no, that would never have worked. No. You know, that, that night was supposed to be, that, that was supposed to be a celebration there in that room, you know, with all those people there and the, and the gangster, the boss guys. That was supposed to be a celebration of me joining forces and to make some money, you know. Yeah, <laughs> I, I guess I made some people mad when I didn't do it, but obviously things all turned out well. And after the rest of the year, and I got on, I went back and played three more years. Now, um, that was when I was there. That was the nineteen. That was the second year of being for me in the, in the CTBL. The following year, nineteen ninety seven, in Taiwan, they started a second professional baseball league called the TML, which was for the Taiwan Major League. Well, I switched leagues and went to another to another team. Now, in that off-season, the, the crap hit the fan. It came out big time about the gambling and all this stuff. And many, many players got arrested. A lot of guys got 
banned forever for playing pro baseball in Taiwan again. Um, the fans took it real hard. I mean, they are incredible fans. I mean, it's like, I described it as like Friday night football. I mean, the, half, the stadiums are always sold out. Now, they're not stadiums like Noah Park or anything, but they're like stadiums that probably hold about 15,000, 18,000. You know, and they were sold out. The people would bring their music and bands and be playing trumpets and banging drums and people are singing and cheering and they're banging these mallets together and they're running around with these these banners and your team flags and it's just crazy. I mean, they love it. Now, when these fans found out this was the untruth game going on, they took it real hard. The following year, in that 1997 season, in the CPBL, one of the teams didn't almost they didn't have enough players because they got arrested and kicked out. That they had to borrow players from the other teams to have a team that year. Wow! And they instead of getting thousands of people up the game, they were getting like a couple of hundred. Now in the, in the Taiwan Major League, where I went to, we're the brand new clean league, so the fans switched on over on the most part. And our games were pretty much themselves most of the time. If not, it was pretty close. So it, it switched over there, and. and and this gambling thing just continued for a long time, for years to come, from what people told me. Yeah, from from the stuff I've been reading about it out there, like they finally, within like the last ten years or so, have like a a good established you know league going with the CPBL, and it finally appears to be clean. And that's just crazy that there was a point in time in, in Taiwan where like you you didn't know what to believe when it came to the, the baseball out there. And you alluded to the guy getting thrown off the roof. Yeah. This, this gentleman, Milton Harper was allegedly yeah, thrown off a roof in Taiwan. And from, from, I saw another report that this, this gambling was going all the way down to the high school leagues. Like there was, there was gamblers betting on, on high school games out there and trying to get the, the kids to throw games and all these people were indicted. And it's just, absolutely crazy that, that you ended up in the middle of that situation. And that, that is yeah. just crazy. Yeah. Also, as a player yeah, in the we, CPBL, you guys, you, you said that they really like singing out there. Now, I, I recently saw a story that you were talking about that they would make you as the, the team go to these different promotional events and sing for people. And there was one in particular where you ended up in a kind of wacky situation. Can you tell us about that if you, if you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah, the singing thing. I mean, singing, like I tell you, is big time there. I mean, gambling is too. They, they gamble, right? and that's why this kind of happened. But singing is, like like I said, those, those karaoke places, and they they love to do it all the time. So now, well, this was in my second season. You know, this was 1996. It was kind of cool. When I arrived in Taiwan, we went to, the first month, we went and trained in Australia, which is really cool. So we came back. And then there was about a month before the season was going to start. So we we're still training for another month. And then what our, our brand new owner wanted to do was to have us promote the team. So we were going about before and after practices, you know, in our uniforms and going to these different, you know, companies and places. And, and we go there and we do the usual sign autographs and talk about the team, take, you know, take pictures with people too. And then there's always at the end, We'd have to like line up in these two like rows, like the smaller guys in the front, the taller guys in the back, and then we we start singing songs. <laughs> My God, bless it! What is it? They're in Chinese, so I don't really know what the songs are. But I'm standing there, and sometimes I just stand there and just look straight ahead, or sometimes I just move my just 
mouth, you know, with no words coming out, just moving my mouth. It made it look like I was kind of doing something, so I didn't look like a fool just standing there. So we did this all the time. So this is going on and on. And, you know, we realized, you know, you got to promote the team. You know, you got to get people out to the park. You know, the owner needs to make money. You know, so you, you get all that. You understand. But, you know, we're getting, we're getting started to get tired of it. You know, so this has been going on for a while. Now, this one day they told us we had to meet the bus even earlier than normal. I'm like, oh, super early in the morning. I have a bunch of guys. Well, I stayed out late. You know, we didn't want to get up extra early. And supposedly we're going to another promotion. It's like, God, okay. So we started driving on the team bus as usual in our baseball uniform. And um, we're kind of driving a little bit longer than normal. We're kind of getting out, skirts, kind of outer part of town. You know, there's not really a lot out there. You know, where was the. In Taiwan, it's like it's like you're like in New York City all the time. It's just building, building, tall buildings, and densely populated, and just so much stuff. But now we're kind of getting outside. We're like, well, and off in the distance, I see this kind of this bigger building. Like, shit, I mean, that looks like a jail or a prison or something, you know? Well, as we got closer, it was a prison. <laughs> we're, we're driving to a prison to do a promotion for the team. Oh, I'm thinking, why are we going to a prison? It's not like you guys can come out and watch us play every night. I mean, they're in jail. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. So we pull up to the big gate. You have this big, giant gate that has, like, they, they open up and they slide open sideways. So the bus pulls in, and you got to stop, and then the gate slides and closes behind you. Then the next gate, this huge gate in front of you, opens up. And you go through that one and stop, and it slides and closes behind you. And then we drive up, we, I remember we drove up to the building, and then we stopped. And then out of the door came a, a probably about two or three guards, it looked, if I remember right. They come out and get us. And I'm like, well, we're going into this prison. I'm thinking to myself, okay? So we walk in through this door where these guys came from, and then we open up, there's another door, and then you know, again, like, a door behind you has to close before the next door opens up. And we're walking through all these hallways and going through more doors and all this kind of stuff. And it's just kind of a weird sensation. Um, we kind of wrap around and then we walk out and look. As, as I'm coming in from behind these guys, it's a stage. I go to a stage. And as I got in more, it, you know, it opened up. And it looked like, like a high school auditorium kind of a stage, which is probably a little bit bigger. And then down below, it is like maybe six feet below that. Then all of a sudden, I noticed um, all these folded chairs were seated with prisoners. I mean, just rows and rows of these chairs. I would guess to make maybe 400 of these guys. And they're all sitting there in white T-shirts, blue gym shorts, and sandals. <laughs> and they're in all these rows. And then in the middle of all this, this big row went right down the aisle, went right down from the stage, you know, went right down the middle. And then there's this big old table where the warden was sitting with some guards surrounded by all these rows and rows and rows of chairs of these prisoners. So I'm wondering, what are we going to do here? Well, next thing you know, they get a pair of two rows, and I hear this music playing, and next thing you know, we're singing songs to prisoners. <laughs> <laughs> It's like incredible. I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. We're singing. I mean, oh my God. So once again, I'm sitting there. I, I don't even care. I'm not even moving my lips. I'm just going to sit there and just like, hey, let's just get this over with. Well, we play one song. We play a second song, a third song. 
I think we played about five songs that were singing to these guys before we finally came to an end. Okay, let's get out of here. Nope. Now it's like this Q&A time. So what happens is, uh, we, we, I guess our, a couple of our you know, guys are speaking Chinese, though. These guys start raising their hand. Well, they raise their hand. Our guy points to some prisoner. He jumps up and he has to scoot through the whole aisle of chairs, just scooting, you know, jogging, stirring, it looks like to me. And then he gets down to that big aisle, and as he's going to run down, he had to stop, bow to the warden, and then run a little bit more to where this podium and microphone was at. And then I guess he asked some kind of question. The guys answer it, and then we, we throw a T-shirt at him, and he grabs it, then he runs back up that aisle, stops again, bows to the warden, <laughs> throws the little aisle again and takes the seat. I mean, these guys were like prisoners. I mean, these guys were like tattooed up and just, they looked tough, you know? And But they were sitting there like standard, like hands and knees sitting properly and quiet, you can hear a pin drop sometimes you know, as quiet they had to be, I was like, yeah I work at a middle school, and our kids are not like this, these are prisoners, you know <laughs> well, they ask a bunch of more questions, we throw more shirts and finally, it's over so, now we go back we, we back how we came back in through the hallways and through the doors and back outside and into the bus and, you know, in and out of the gates and stuff like that, and it's like unbelievable, we, we came into a place to sing to prisoners to promote our team. So, <laughs> singing and prisoners and gangsters are all over the place. You know, you're either singing with them in karaoke or you're singing them in the prison, you know. Wow. How surreal. And when them, when them prisoners got back to their cells, the warden took the T-shirts because they were contraband. <laughs> Probably, yeah. You know, so you know, you guys made those prisoners happy. And, well... I'm glad we made them happy rather than seeing them frowning and looking like this is thinking this would be a good time for her, right? No, it was <laughs> you know? So yeah. I'm glad we made them happy. We brought a little joy and happiness singing to them. How surreal is that? Like you you're you were just removed from the major league ba- playing major league baseball pitching in like the United States and all of a sudden you know, two years later you're singing in a prison to prisoners. Like that had to be the weirdest yeah. feeling in the world. Yeah, you just wonder where you're at. You know, I mean, things are different. Obviously, you're in a completely different culture, language, food, the whole works. You're trying to deal with all that kind of stuff. Yeah, you, know, you know you're somewhere else different in different Gucci things. And, well, before I went to Taiwan, I played a season and a half in, in the Mexican League. When I got there for the first time really being away and playing outside the United States, instead of getting frustrated and mad, me and a couple of my American roommates, we just said, you know what? You just got to laugh. You know, the healing power of laughter. If you take this serious, and you're trying to fix problems all the time that are going to happen, you'll be so frustrated that you'll be beside yourself. And I saw a lot of guys break down and crack. So I always maintain, you just got to laugh. If you laugh, you laugh it off, and things seem to be a whole lot better. <laughs> yeah, ex- exactly. It's, I mean, just taking for life as it comes, and and you were able to gain like really awesome experiences out out of playing around the world. Like, yeah, you could have just 
been down on yourself like and just gone home but you got so much valuable life experience from it and it, and great stories that you get to tell now and, and still laugh about so yeah it seems like you had a really great attitude um, when you were playing in Mexico the travel accommodations were less than ideal um, tell us about what those like long bus rides were like tell us more about your time in Mexico well, okay, so that was the first place I really I kind of went to. And I went to Puerto Rico and played in winter ball before I went to Mexico. But there I was in Mexico. Um, oh, God, you know, it was the first time, you know, the year before. I went to Mexico in 1993. In 1992, I was in major league spring training with the San Francisco Giants. So I'm staying at a, a, at a resort hotel there in Scottsdale. Now, now, a year later, I'm in Mexico where I, I show up and there's a team motel. <laughs> and I, I get there, and my first time, I'm going, okay, here we go. I'll be all right. I remember I woke up in the daylight, okay, I, there's a big dried-up bugger on the wall next to my bed. I'm like, oh, man, okay, this is where I'm at. Okay, i got to get out of here. i got to pitch good. Wow. Well, the next game league is kind of tough. That's why I first learned that things are tough. You know, a lot of guys, I felt, could have been major league all-stars, can go to the Mexican League or even the Taiwan and won't be able to handle it just because of the culture and stuff like that. And just It's not first class. So, you know, in, in the Mexican League, you travel by bus, and there are some very long, long bus rides. Now, the first team I played for was uh, in a place called Puebla, which is like about an hour and a half, by a couple of hours just outside of Mexico City, which is like almost kind of like smack dab in the middle of the country. So it's kind of good being in the middle of the country because you know, you had some long bus rides, but we weren't at the bottom end or the top end of the country and having to really do it. And we still had 12-hour, 14-hour, 16-hour bus rides a lot on the public. Now, we had a coach bus, which was nicer, but the bad thing about it was we had air conditioning, but we didn't have a bathroom. Oh. So when you're on these long rides and you got to go to the bathroom, you got to learn how to hold it. And... On all these bus rides, they're so long. You know, the guys have some beers on there, too. So you're drinking a few beers, and that kind of makes you have to go to the bathroom eventually anyway. So a lot of times, the bus driver, in the midst of this long ride that you're going to be on, pulls off the side of the road, and about 20-something guys jump out and start taking a leak outside. Now, sometimes, that number two hits you. <laughs> and, you know, you you got to do it where you got to do it. Um, I learned uh, early on this. Carry two, always have a thing and a bus with me in my bag. I always bring a pillow so I'm more comfortable. Bring two bottles of water and always have a couple of rolls of toilet paper. <laughs> now, because number two, on the side of a road, you got to have some use. Or sometimes they would stop at a, a little rest stop, which we didn't go too often where we ever seen. But when you were there, they didn't have no rolls of toilet paper in the same little bathroom there or nothing. It was like kind of a crude toilet and it was a good thing that you had your toilet paper. So that was kind of the bad thing. We had air conditioning, though, on this bus. Right? So a lot of long, long bus rides. And I remember this team in Pueblo was, uh, where our bus would meet, where we'd take off, you know, to take off the travel through the night. I mean, you, you, you would be awakened in the morning with the sun beating through the, the window into your face, and you still had hours to go. So, yeah. These things are just so long. And then the second team, I had to play for a second team. Um, and a place called Compeche, 
which happened to be at the very south part of the country, down in the Yucatan. So I joined this team, it was like in the middle of the year. And now their bus was the opposite. They had a bathroom, but they had no air conditioning. Wow. So in the heat of the Mexican summer, you know, you had your windows open, the wind blowing in, but you had a bathroom. Um, and then again, we had these at least those 16-hour bus rides. But now, when we would travel to the Northern Division, those were 32-hour bus rides. Wow. So those were extremely long. Now, we're on our bus one time, and um, man, I had to go to the bathroom. Oh, cool. We got a bathroom in our bus. Um, I had to go to number two, of course. So I go in, I take my dump, I come out. And as I'm walking back in, one of my teammates, Mexican teammates, goes, hey, man, did you take the crap in there? I said, yeah, I we don't do that here. For what? What? He goes, if you have to take a... Yeah, he's saying another word. He goes, if you take your crap, you grab a box, you crap in it, and you throw it out the window. He'll crap inside the box. Nah. <laughs> okay. I guess I'm going to learn the rule of the thing of having a toilet in the box, you know? You don't crap in the box. You don't want to smell it like that. So, anyway, the only thing that toilet was used for to, you know, to, to take a leak in, you know, which was good. Now, we're in these long bus rides, and these guys, of course, they were kind of more of a little bit of a wild, kind of a fun team, a little wild. So a lot of drinking would go on, so it was great to have the, those toilets there inside the bus, but real long. And then, you know, while we were in the Northern Division, we were up there playing on this one trip, and um, we were going from one town to the other. So up there, I bet you it's probably, we were probably only had to take about a six-hour bus ride up there to connect from one of those towns, which was great. Six hours compared to thirty or sixteen, and so on. But we're as we're driving, we were out in the middle of nowhere. It was like pitch dark. The only light you had was from the moon, which kind of gave the silhouette to the hills that were kind of surrounding us. You know, where we're at this time. Suddenly, the bus just like boom, we're going like seventy-five miles an hour. We slow down to five miles an hour. The headlights turn off, and the lights inside the bus go out. It's dark. And we're going super slow. I'm like, what the hell's going on here? Um, so I asked one of my teammates. And he says, hey, we got to slow down and be really quiet. This is an area where there's lots of bandits. They come out of the hills and they ambush the buses and they rob everybody and they beat people. So we got to be real careful and quiet here. So we drive super slow for five miles an hour. For, I mean, I think it's going on for an hour. Well, I'm, I'm staring out the windows, just like staring into those hills, waiting for bandits to like come down and get us. I mean, I got my imagination going. I'm, <laughs> I'm picturing guys with big old sombreros and and chains, you know, crisscrossing bullets across their chests, and coming out to get us. I'm waiting for this kind of thing. So after a while, nothing happened. And the the lights pop back on. And then the bus starts traveling like 75 miles an hour again, and we, we get out of there. So that was kind of a, a tense kind of a time and something that I wasn't expecting to deal with, the possibility of bandits coming out of the hills to attack them. Wow. <laughs> it, seems, it seems like there's been several times in your career that, like, I mean, you're, you're just trying to play baseball, and there's times that you've had to actually fear for your life just playing, just trying to play some ball and pitch. That's absolutely incredible. Was there ever a point in your career that you had just like asked yourself, "Man, what am I? What am I doing here? Should I just go home?" Or did you just just kind of laugh it off and rolled with the punches? Just, 
just had to laugh it. I just decided as long as I had a uniform on my back, I had a, an opportunity to maybe be seen and get back to the United States and get back to where it was supposed to be good. So I just kept babbling and babbling and just hoping that I would get an opportunity again. Yeah. That's incredible. That's incredible determination that you showed during that time when, yeah, when things got weird and sometimes scary and sometimes even life-threatening. That's incredible. And, and plus, you still had to play the games. Like, you had to deal with these long 32-hour bus rides. You had to deal with the, the thought of bandits maybe coming and robbing you guys. You had people threatening to potentially throw you off a building. And, and you still had to pitch during these games and still perform at a high level. I mean, that's that's incredibly demanding. <laughs> that's incredible that you were able to do that. Well, the, the, the teams, the owners and the, and the general managers and everybody, when they bring in a foreign player, an American in, they pay us a lot more than their average player. And, you know, so I'd be a, one of the higher paid players. And therefore, they expected me to pitch great every single game, every single inning. I was supposed to win every game. If you're a hitter, you're supposed to get a base hit every time. So they put a lot of pressure on you to always have to be good. And if you don't do well, they get rid of you and bring another guy in quickly enough. So you got that pressure on you too, you know, amongst everything else. Did that ever cause any animosity between um, yourself and the American ballplayers and then the, the, the players that were native to the countries? Like the fact that you were making more, did, did, the play, did that ever cause animosity between you and the other players? Um, I, don't, I don't think so. I think everyone realized what the situation was. They knew that we got paid a lot better, but, you know, they're bringing us in. You know, we're the better players under the team. So I think they understood that's just the way it was. But you, you kind of sensed there was a little something to it, but it was never really a big deal while I was there with, with the team and players that I was with. Yeah, and bringing you the American ball players in. <clears throat> You know, it it puts more fans in the seats, I'm sure, in those different, you know, smaller towns in Mexico and Taiwan. They hear that this guy who played in the majors with the best of the best is here, and it helps put butts in the seats and helps keeping everybody get getting paid at that point, I suppose. So I'm sure they, they recognize that fact, too, right? I think so, yeah. Yeah. And plus, they realized they were pretty much staying there. You know, there's only so many young Mexican players or whatever that they can they couldn't really release guys and try to get more. They tried to had to get these young guys and develop them and keep them around for a while. They realized for me, man, they saw the other guys like me, Americans, coming and going. If you didn't do good, you were gone. So, you know, they, they had to release as well. At least they didn't have that kind of pressure put on them, you know. Yeah, that's true. They were they were kind of there to stay and, and you could be, you know, out by the next morning or something. Um, with all this amazing life experience playing ball in the United States and all around the world, how does this translate to your life now as an educator? What can you, what do you use from your life experience? What do you draw from that to help you in in your career now? Well, it just shows you, you you never know what's going to happen to you, where you're going to ever end up. You know, you always got to stay focused. You always got to be confident and positive in what you're doing. And, you can't get too upset. You can't get too happy. You got to kind of, you know, learn to stay in that middle even keel. You know, I think that's one thing I, I I take out. You know, I teach kids when I work them either in the classroom or or on the baseball field. You know, I I can just reflect upon my my days of being all these different places and just, you know, it's not as bad as you think it is. It can always be worse. So just do what you can do. 
Yeah, that that's a wonderful attitude that you have towards life and that you had towards baseball and life experience. I mean, you you're probably one of the most patient guys after dealing with all that you've had to deal with. That patience probably translates very well into the classroom. You know, dealing with middle schoolers on a daily basis, right? Right. And how has this COVID nineteen epidemic or or pandemic rather um, affected you yourself as an educator and your job? Well, schools all got, you know, canceled, like canceled, but no one goes to the school. We, we have to do things remotely now through, you know, the, the computer, yeah. you, know, and the, you know, and the video, like they call them Zooms, and then there's called Google Hangouts, you know, you, you got to get on and, and talk to kids and try to keep them going, and, you know, it's hard for them, it's hard for their parents, and, you know, it just, everyone realizes, hey, you know, I think hopefully the kids go, you know, school isn't so bad after all. You know, you have your teachers right there when you need help. And so now when they're at home and, and they don't understand something, and it, it causes a lot of stress for them, you know. And it's a lot harder, too, for the teachers to try to take care of all their students, you know, trying to get a hold of them. That's the hardest part, trying to get a hold of your kids whenever you, you want to or need to. So it's a whole different thing way about how we're doing things nowadays. Yeah, well, hopefully hopefully by next school year everything can get back together. We can get back to having sports. We can get back to having kids in school. And life will have some sort of semblance of being normal again. And hopefully we'll have baseball that, by that point, too. Um, question, with all this, these amazing stories that you have, I noticed you've been you know, kind of sharing your stories on Twitter. You've been getting around a little bit on the media circuit. I noticed you were talking to Tom Pippins recently. Um, are you writing a book of these stories? Are you, are you currently publishing a book? Yeah, I'm writing a, I'm working on a book. For years and years and years, I just share stories with friends and people, and they say, you know, Don, you got to write a book. And I got to write no book. <laughs> you know, and I just, finally, just kind of, I said, well, maybe I should. So I, I got, I got, I, I put a book together. I got this rough draft already written out, and I, I got all these stories, and, and the whole book was about being, after being in the major leagues, playing in these other countries overseas and around the world, and what is it like for an American trying to play baseball in these different places. How is the game different? What's it like to try to play in these different cultures and, and get all these weird and goofy stories? So I kind of throwing them all out there. I'm in the midst of uh, editing it and rearranging it and have a, getting a, some people to help work on it too, like a, a publisher. We're trying to get to a publisher to get it exactly the way they want it. So it's just, it's just telling all my stories. And my son said, you know, hey, Dad, why, why don't you kind of just tweet out some story here and there and see if people like it, you know, and kind of get a feel of how your book will be. And sorry, so we, 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 taught, we, we put out like four of these different tweets now telling four different stories, and, and they've been kind of popular. I've had a lot of people contacting me and wanting to do interviews and asking more about it, and so it's kind of taken off a little bit, so maybe this book might be a good thing sooner or later. Yeah, I think it's definitely a book that, that you'll probably land a publisher for. I've never actually heard of any books. I mean, you, I've read about Roberto Clemente and other people from different countries coming to America to play ball, and I've heard those stories, but yours is the first story I've really heard of an American ball player going overseas or to different countries to try to play ball. So I think it's definitely a story that people want to hear and that people will be very excited to read once you get this book out. And we'll definitely, I'll definitely be reading it because I'm just floored by some of these stories you've been telling, Don. I think it's absolutely incredible um a couple more questions i want to know 
if when you were in those different countries playing ball, were, were you asked to learn the, the native language of those countries? This is a debate we've been having on our podcast with, with different um, guests that we've had talking about whether or not players are required or should be required to learn the language of their, the country that they're coming to play ball in. Were you ever pressured to or were you ever asked to learn the, the native languages? Well, you're in their country the way I, I, I figured it be. You're in their country, you got to speak their language. You can't expect people to be in these different places to speak English. Now, there are people around, because English is a popular language around the world, to know. But there's often times you're all on your own. So I had to really work on my Spanish, which I got pretty decent after all being in Puerto Rico, the Dominican Republic, and Mexico. My Spanish is starting to come around. Now, if you can speak the language, life is a lot easier. Plus, people will tend to try to help you more when you're trying to speak their language. And if you're struggling, they will help you out a lot more than them looking at you as like the arrogant American expecting them to speak English to you in, in their own country. And then I had to try to learn to speak Chinese in Taiwan for those five years that I was there. Now, Chinese, you're speaking in, in these, these different tones. There's four different tones. And so that was like a whole new thing for, for me to try to figure out. And you have to learn. You have to learn how to tell a cab driver how to get you from one place to another. You have to figure out how to eat and, and all everything daily life. So the more that you've learned, the easier and better it was for you. And then my final year of pro ball was in Italy. I played one more year at the very, very end. Of so I just tried to learn how to speak Italian, which was kind of easier to learn because it's very similar to a lot of words in Spanish. So, yeah, it's not like no one tells you you have to do it. But it's a lot easier for you. And then for my team in Taiwan, though, we did have a translator on the team. Because most of the time in the five years, my managers were Japanese. So we had a, a, a translator who had to listen to the manager speak Japanese. He would tell the Taiwanese guy in Chinese what he just said. After he said that, then he had to repeat everything to the American guys in English. Now, most of the guys who spoke Spanish knew English anyways, but... Guys like me, and we could help the guys out a little bit of Spanish. And if you had to say something back, it went back and forth English to Chinese to Japanese, back to Chinese to English. And it was like, oh, meetings can last a lot longer than you'd hope they would be. Yeah, it sounds like team meetings had to be quite a chore. <laughs> Well, that's absolutely crazy and incredible. And, yeah, thank you so much for coming on. We're going to wrap it up there. I have one more question for you that I ask every guest. It's, I just want to know, and I ask this to everybody, crunchy or creamy peanut butter, Don? What was that again? Uh, crunchy or creamy peanut butter? Crunchy or I mean, I'm easy. I, 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 can, I like both. I can, it depends on what mood I'm in. Okay. But, but if I want to be more fun, maybe the crunchies. Yeah, I go crunchy every time, Don. Well, thank you so much for coming and joining us on this on this episode. We were so happy to have you, and we were so happy to get your stories out there. And um, we'll promote your book when it comes out. And we're we're so glad to have you. And thank you so much for coming on. We're very gracious and and thankful that you took some time out of this beautiful Saturday in May in Wisconsin to come talk to us. So thank you so much, Don. And please stay on the line after I hit end here. And thanks again. All right, sounds good. Enjoy. Tell me stories. All right, thank you.